We're going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be uh, in Luke 19. So we're going to be in Luke 19 and verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. For a few short verses, and they're very familiar to us. We know the story about Jesus clearing the temple. And nearly always we talk about, well, Jesus came along, he saw what was going on in the temple, he didn't like it, it wasn't what it was supposed to be. He got very angry about the whole thing, and he clears the whole place out. End of story. And, you know, we talk, go on to talk about righteous anger. That it's okay to get angry about something you think is wrong. And that it's okay to take decisive action if you need to. And we often leave it there. And we just think, oh, this was just in a, a little incident. This was um, a passing story in the life of Jesus. And quite often we see that, don't we? We look at the Gospels and there's a little snippet here, a little snippet there. Something happened and Jesus did something. And we go, oh yeah, great, okay. But actually, I think this is a much, much more important act. Matter of fact, I go so far as to say this is a prophetic act. This was symbolic of something much deeper and much more important. You see, this act, this clearing of the temple... This was the trigger. This was what started the end, if you like. This is what brought everything down on Jesus' head. You see, this wasn't, oh, I'm going to the temple. Oh, look at what they've done. I've lost my temper. I'm not going to put up with this. This was a deliberate act, a provocative act, calculated and done to get a reaction. See, I don't think... Although Jesus was fully human, I think he was much more in control of his emotions than we are. Whereas we might see something, get angry and react, I don't think he would be quite the same as us. I think he would see it and he would, he would feel the anger, but his reaction would be more controlled and maybe more deliberate. And maybe being God, he knew what he was going to find when he got there. So he knew he was going to do this. Why? Well, let's look a bit deeper and look into the background of it. You see, this is the temple. Now, we use the words the temple. We talk about the temple. It's central to our doctrine. and We keep talking about it. But what actually was it? What was it? Well, it was actually the heart of the city of Jerusalem. We talk about Jerusalem as the city on a hill. Now, I've never been there, but those are people who tell me when you go there, it is a city on a hill. It's a big hill. And right at the top of the hill is a temple. And it was a wonder of the ancient world. Solomon's original temple had been built about a thousand years before. But that was destroyed in 600 BC. That amazing temple that we talk about in the Bible that David wanted to build but wasn't allowed to build, but his son Solomon was. That majestic building that was one of the wonders of the world at the time. That was destroyed. 
That was gone. So what we're talking about now, contemporary to Jesus' time, was the new temple, the second temple, the replacement. But even that one had fallen into disrepair and needed to be repaired. And Herod, who was the king at the time, had decided, I'm going to make myself look good with the Jewish nation. So I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to make it glorious again. So he'd spent a lot of time and money over the previous few years rebuilding this temple. And we know it was predominantly made of marble. It was clad with silver and gold. And it says it shone. When you looked at Jerusalem, it shone out. It was a beacon on a hill. If you can imagine in those times 2,000 years ago, people lived in very basic mud brick houses. And there was this majestic temple right in the heart of everything, glistening in the sun. So we know it's an important building. Okay, it's an important building. But what was its purpose? Okay, you've got a majestic building. But what's it about? We just tritely say, well, it was the home of God. It's where God lived with his people. Okay. But what was its purpose? What was it for? And we say, well, it's where, it's where they went to worship. It's where, it's where they went to interact with God. Where they went to worship with him. Yes, they could. But what was it for? You see, the temple wasn't there for their benefit. The temple wasn't there for God's benefit. The temple was there for other people. In Isaiah 56, God said, My house will be a house of prayer, a house for all nations. The purpose of the temple was to be attractive. It was to stand out. It was to draw people in. It was for people to come to. And it's what God had wanted the Israelites to be. He wanted the Jews to be an attractive people. Yes, they were special. They were his. They were holy. He'd chosen them. But that didn't mean they were to be exclusive. And all through his word, it says about the foreigners that are with you, the people in your household. It talks about that all the time. It's talking about outsiders, non-Jews, Gentiles. And talks about being inclusive, about bringing them in attracting them, about showing them something that they want to be drawn to, that they want to be part of. And even the outer court of the temple, where all this transaction stuff took place, that actually was called the court of the Gentiles. And it was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to come in. It was to draw them in. Now, they couldn't go into the inner sanctum because they weren't Jewish, and they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies because they weren't priests. But they could come into the temple... And the idea was that they would be drawn to the Jewish nation. They would be drawn to something that they had. Rather than all the pagan gods and all the stuff that, that went along with that, they would see these people had something and want to be part of it. And actually, the trading in the court of the Gentiles was allowed. God did allow it. It was okay to travel a long way and then buy a sacrifice. That was okay. It was okay <coughs> to travel a long way and have foreign currency and exchange your currency so you could pay some money into the temple tax. All that was okay. It was, it was fine. But over the years, it had been corrupted. And they started charging more, fiddling more, 
abusing the privilege of, be, of doing that. And all of a sudden, yes, it was corrupt. And the priesthood were involved. They were living off the back of it. It was a sort of a bit of a, <coughs> excuse me, sort of a crime thing going on. So it was extortionate. It was exploiting people. It had completely lost its purpose. And Jesus knew that. And obviously, he didn't want that to carry on. But we get the impression that, oh, maybe churches shouldn't have gift shops because it's wrong to be commercial. It's not that at all. There was a level of it that was allowed because it made life easier. It's just that people had got hold of it and distorted it. They'd made it something it was never, ever meant to be. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Jesus has a lot of form with the temple. He has a long history with the temple. But we don't often put the two together. We always associate Jesus popping into the temple because he happened to be there. But all through his life, his life had been linked with the temple. If we look back, we go back to an earlier passage in Luke. Go back to Luke 2. And if you go back to Luke 2 and verse 22. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Go back to Luke 2 and verse 22. So this is, right, at the beginning of Jesus' life. He's still a child. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. <coughs> Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was required by the custom of the law, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at their very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. <coughs> so there's the first occasion 
where Jesus is recognized in the temple. He's taken there as a very young child. And it's like, whoa, this is who we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This baby is the Messiah. He's recognized in the temple courts. And then a bit later in his life, in the next chapter, in verse uh, 41, it says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. <coughs> when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. You see, Jesus' history had been linked with the temple right from the very beginning. The temple courts where he was recognized was where he was clearing. That's where people had said, this is the Messiah. That's where when he was about 12, he'd gone back and he'd sat there for days, talking with the rabbis, understanding and questioning. It was an integral part of his life. And then we look at um, him clearing the temple and we think, oh, okay, maybe there was a bit more to it. But in actual fact, Jesus has form. See, unless you look at it very carefully, you don't realize that he's cleared the temple twice. This is the second time he's cleared the temple. He's done it before. Three years before, when he was just starting his ministry, when things were just starting out, he'd been at the temple. And if we look at that, that is in John. Now the other... The only gospel that talks about the first clearing of the temple is John. But he doesn't talk about the second one. But the other gospels talk about the second clearing of the temple. So in John 2, verse 13, this is right in the early days of Jesus' ministry. So we have the wedding at Cana, where he performs the sort of first public miracle, turning water into wine. And then after that, they move on. So it says, after this, he went to Capernaum with his brother and his mother and his disciples. <coughs> there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me, which is a quote from Psalms. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. 
The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. This is the one that Herod had restored. And you're going to raise it again in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, Jesus cleared the temple twice. He bookended his ministry by clearing the temple. The first public act of Jesus was to go in and clear out the temple. was to go in and throw everyone out. And at that time, they said, who the heck is this? Who's this bloke? He's, he's, he's a carpenter from out in the sticks somewhere. What's he doing in here, throwing people out of the temple? Who is he? By what authority does he do this? And then they don't understand the answer that Jesus gives them. And three years later, at the end of his ministry, again at the Passover, he goes back and he does it again. But this time, a lot of them know who he is. A lot of them recognize him. And he's done it provocatively and deliberately to take the temple over. Because in many old translations, you know, Bibles have little headings, don't they, about the verses. A lot of them just say, Jesus clears the temple. Well, some older translations say, Jesus takes back the temple. And that's the truth. Because that's what he did. He took his temple back. He wanted it back. It had been corrupted long enough. It wasn't fit for purpose. It wasn't doing what it should do. The people weren't doing the right things with it. The religious authorities had basically debunked it. And so he wanted it back. You see, the temple was supposed to be a symbol of hope. It was supposed to be an attractive thing that drew people to it. And they would be drawn to God. And it had just become a symbol of corruption. As a Gentile, why would you go there? What would attract you to it? And the Jewish nation had become like that. The temple was just a symbol of the way they were. They weren't an attractive people. They weren't drawing people in. They were an exclusive people. They believed they were special. They were holy to God. So they looked down on people who weren't the same as them. There was nothing about bringing them in. There was nothing about attracting them to come to them. There was nothing about being open and encouraging others. It was all the other way around. It was corrupted. What was the reaction this time? See, last time it was, who is this bloke? What's he doing? What on earth is that? You know, what's going on? Well, this time the reaction was much more serious. But the reaction was more serious, not because Jesus had cleared the temple. It was because he didn't give it back. Last time he cleared it and he went away. This time he stayed. And the key verse is the verse at the end. Not about Jesus clearing the temple, but it's where Jesus returned every day and he taught. He took his temple back and he went there and he taught. And the religious authorities could do nothing about it. They couldn't take the temple back. And the reason for that was they hated him, they despised him, but the people liked him. And that's dangerous. If you've got a revolution, 
and you're the authorities, you can usually dominate until you lose the people. And when you've lost the people, it becomes very, very hard to control a situation. I mean, it's now moved on, but I don't know if some of you remember about 25 years ago, the revolution in Ukraine, the revolution of flowers. It was a peaceful revolution because all the people, or the vast majority of the people, decided they didn't like their government. And so they took bunches of flowers and they went out on the streets. And eventually the weight of population carrying flowers was such the government fell. Now we know their politics have moved on a lot more now and they're now in a different situation. But the power of the previous communist government fell apart because they did not have the power to attack all the people. The people had turned against them. And that's what they were afraid of here. That's what the religious leaders were afraid of. Last time he was just some nut job who had a, t who had a temper tantrum in the temple and they threw him out and, and he was gone. Now he's back and this time it's different. This time he has authority, he has power, the people like him, they come and listen to him, he is teaching them. This is now a real threat and they can't attack him. Because remember they're under Roman rule, and we said before, the way the Romans ran it was very simple. Pay your taxes, don't cause trouble. You can have your religion, you can have all your common practices, you can have your own courts of law, you can do all your stuff, don't cause trouble. And they knew if they tried to tackle him, there'd be a riot. And they couldn't afford that. So that's when it starts. This is the provocative act that led to his death. Because this is the, not just shouting against authority, not just speaking against authority, not just criticizing a few people. This is a wanton act in the most visible place of taking over a symbol of authority. And he's done it. And we don't think of Jesus as a revolutionary. We don't think of Jesus. We might use the word, but we, we sort of think of it in a sort of a passive sense. This was a very positive, very active sense. He took his house back. And when he cleared the temple the second time, he didn't just shout at them and say, you were in my father's house. The words he used were two Old Testament quotes. He said, you know, you have made my father's house a den of robbers, which is a quote from Jeremiah. And he said, this should be a house of prayer, a house for all nations, a quote from Isaiah, again. He's using Old Testament. He might sound like it's a shout of an angry man, but it's a man shouting the word of God. Actually saying where you've gone wrong. Now we can look at this and we can go, oh, that's interesting, nice bit of history. Didn't realize that. I didn't realize there was more to that than I thought. Very good, okay. Comes to the classic, so what? What does it mean for us? Well, I think it's a warning. And I think if you look at church history, you look at what's happened over the last few thousand years, there's a cycle. And there's a revival or a resurgence, a new movement, whatever you choose to call it, whether you call it a denomination or whatever language you use, there's a fresh outbreak of God and a church and things start to happen and things move on. And then, over time, they cease to be. They diminish. They, they, some of them disappear completely. <coughs> you think, what, why? Why does it do that? 
Well, the reason it does that is us, men, human beings. You see, we, we are imperfect. And because we're imperfect, we corrupt what we do. Left to our own devices, we will corrupt and ruin what we are, what we are working in. And I remember being in a meeting with um, Greg Haslam teaching. Some of you will remember Greg. Those of you that don't, Greg Haslam has gone to be with the Lord now, but he was a great teacher, a great prophet, and he was a scouser, and he spoke theologically, but with the language of the street. He had this ability to take some big concept and just put it in the vernacular in a way I will not repeat in here, but in a very basic way, that could make you understand it. And I remember being in a meeting, he was also incredibly prophetic, and I remember being in a meeting where he got very angry about some church leaders and what was going on in some churches. And he harangued them and said, you are ruining God's church. And God says to you, I've had enough of you. I want my church back. And he was right. Those leaders had to go because they were corrupting the church. Because, not because they were doing evil things particularly, but they'd lost their focus. You see, the focus has got to be outwards, not inwards. God's church is not about us. We're the fortunate ones who are children of God. Great. But this church is not about us. God's church is not about us. God's church is about them. There's people out there, the people walking past. It's for them. We need to be attractive for them we need to have something that wants them to know God and the moment we start to focus on ourselves the moment we start to think about how we do things or this is how it's done we are starting on a slippery slope and we need to be very careful and, and as a leader you're always pulling yourself back thinking why are we doing this is it actually because it's convenient for us or is it because it's for outsiders, for the people who aren't yet in here? And I can remember a long debate over what time a church service should start. And the killer for it was, well, it's more convenient for us and our musicians to start at this time. And for a couple of us in that meeting, the alarm bells went, no! I don't care how inconvenient it is for us. It's not about us. It's about doing things at the right time that we get people in or we give them the greatest opportunity to come in. And it's the same thing, whatever we do, we should be constantly asking that question. Is this about us or is it about them out there, the people we want in? That's got to be our focus. You made the comment about a well-oiled machine being attractive to others. That's exactly what we should be. That's exactly what we should be. Something that attracts people to come in. Now, they don't have to come in full of knowledge. They don't have to come in thinking, I'm going to meet God. They just have to come in. They just have to be attracted in. The church has to be a place where people, even if they're not attracted, they're curious. There's something going on there. They see something. I can remember as a non-Christian coming here over 30-odd years ago and deciding, I'll go back there. And the reason I came back was nothing to do with God. It was simply that the people in here at the time were not hypocritical because they were actually doing stuff and what they were doing was much more important to me than what they were saying. 
Now, over a period of time, I realized that what they were saying and what they were doing married up. They were congruent. It was right. It was the word of God, and they were actually doing it. But that's what convinced me there was something going on in here. Now, I know, looking back on my life, I was searching. There were things going on. Even if I didn't admit it at the time, something was happening. God was sort of pulling me. But I'll freely admit I walked out of a lot of churches because I don't think God was there. They were dry. They were just about themselves. And they weren't doing anything about other people. And that's the thing the church can fall into, becoming its own thing, becoming its own body, becoming its own institution. And it's something that we need to watch out for all the time. Now, I don't think we're guilty of it, but I think it's a question we should always be asking ourselves. Is this about us or is it about them? Because I would hate God to turn up and say, get out of the way, I want my church back. That would be awful. Don't very often preach warnings, but sometimes you have to. I'm going to pray, hand over to Joshua and the musicians. And I would say, like I said before, please, 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 if you've had the nudge from God, do not leave today without being prayed for. Please don't do that. You okay, guys?